Hello, friends. You've come across the relaunch of Mainstream Mesa. Buckle up. It's a hell of a ride. what it sounds like to relaunch mainstream mesa and you're welcome and thank you to stone martin for that amazing remake of staying alive formerly by the bj's but i think after everybody hears this version nobody's gonna remember the bg's like bg's who right well to uh relaunch mainstream mesa i brought on amazing guest her name is young kaprowski she's a traffic engineer now she's dabbling in politics. She wasn't dabbling in politics when we recorded this, but we've had a time off, right? And I hope everybody's doing all right, given the pandemic, given this strange COVID time that we're in, people making up stuff, people not sure what, <laughs> what's real, what's not. Um, I just hope everybody's just taking the time to for self-care here in these times, though, and doing what you think is uh, makes most sense for you and your family and your loved ones and your friends. This is just a time that we're all in this together, right? And we need to take care of each other. So you'll find that this episode's a lot about taking care of each other. And Jan Kaprowski's one of those people who can do it. She started a great firm, Y2K, that's doing some great uh, traffic engineering for the city of Mesa. So we wanted to bring her on and have her uh, share with us some of her insights. So here she is. Thanks, Ryan. I have been in the Valley for... 12 years as a consultant engineer. I was um, raised here in Arizona as well. My background is uh, have, a, have a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and have always worked on the consultant side, primarily in transportation safety. So that's very uh, near and dear to my heart. I founded Y2K Engineering about three years ago, and we have grown from just me to 13 individuals now. We have a lot of different projects ranging from traffic engineering design to studies and analysis um, on the safety side and for multimodal projects as well. Very cool. And so you say that you've grown to 13. Over what time would you say that you've done this? Quick apology. I know that the audio is not the best, but a lot of editing went into at least making it uh, listenable. Uh, I hope that you'll forgive me. No more Ryan in a toilet bowl for future episodes. Promise. Over three years, so we had, when I first started, it was myself. At the end of uh, 2017, we had four. At the end of 2018, we had six. And at the end of 2019, we had 10 people. So. Even just in the last couple months, we've added um, a few more and are really excited about the opportunities and possibilities for our company and our growth 
and are expanding um, based on our you know quality of work here in Arizona and then we also opened an office in Colorado. When you started did you think that you would get here so fast? Uh, no, not at all. My initial plans were just to try to grow to maybe three people and that would be really like a mark of success for me and it just kind of naturally fell into place with opportunities with the great staff that I have and then realizing that I really loved being a business owner as well as an engineer and creating an environment um, where we could do really great work but also have a work environment that um, our engineers and designers could really enjoy being at. Okay, cool. So what drew you to engineering in the first place? Like, did you go through school always knowing that this, you know, this place in the streets needs to be optimized or designed or controlled or anything? Like, what drew you there? So I had a really interesting, like, introduction to engineering. My dad was an electrical engineer, so he definitely had that engineering influence. And I remember as a kid, he would design koi pond for my mom or the tack room for me and he would just draw on a piece of paper and then he would build it and so I had that influence like all growing up um, but I actually wanted to be a veterinarian because I grew up in Queen Creek and just had a menagerie of animals <laughs> but my dad said well why don't you go to biomedical engineering before being a veterinarian so I actually went to school with that in mind started volunteering with Habitat for Humanity at ASU and really realized that I loved construction as well. And so I ended up changing my major to civil engineering. I've seen you do the Habitat for Humanity. Is that like a team building thing that still like feels good to be part of? It is. I really enjoy um, that organization because of the um, whole mission of providing affordable housing, but also how it's kind of self-sustaining in the fact that there are corporate sponsors, but then the homeowners have to do sweat equity and they also pay a mortgage. It's just zero interest, which makes it affordable. Very cool. Well, I like that sweat equity concept. That's, that's good. You know, like there's all these um, potential people like and, and their abilities just putting them to organizing those abilities and making sure that they can do um, something good for themselves. And, and so, yeah, it's great. Um, and you said something about um, how you learned that you enjoy the management side of the engineering. And I did want to just point out that from knowing you personally, uh, you have this ability to connect with people um, very kindly and very um, sincerely. And I think that that is a strength of yours and why uh, you're doing so well. And so mm, I want to compliment you on that because, you know, I've known you uh, probably for three or four years uh, on and off. Um, but you've always come across as somebody who's very trustworthy and kind and empathetic uh, in your industry and your cause. So uh, I want to say hats off to you for that. Give you props. Thank you so much. So with that in mind and how honest and like... I see you as an ethical engineer, right? You're somebody who sincerely cares about safety and you've prioritized your career, it seems, around the, the cause for safety and transportation. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you've seen safety grow in the cause of civil engineering or traffic engineering and, uh, and where you see that headed and, and how, how pleased you are with it maybe or how much further we have yet to go. Sure. 
So engineering is really important in terms of we're in charge of building and designing and operating and maintaining our transportation systems, um, along with all our great transportation professionals, such as planners. Um, however, when it comes down to the work that I do, I do a lot of analysis of crashes. And even doing that early on in my career, I could really connect and be empathetic when I'm reviewing crash reports in the fact that we're looking at it as data, but there's there's people behind the data. Okay. And it, it, it really does get to you when you start reviewing um, crashes that have resulted in serious injury or death. And that, um, you know, tr traditionally, we find a lot of ways to blame others in why that's happening. We blame people. I mean, people are, they drive distracted, they drive impaired, they, it's really easy to say that, oh, well, the driver, you know, had some behavioral issue. As engineers, we can't change that. And traditionally, we also focus on cars and designing our, our infrastructure around cars and maybe not necessarily around people. So I think now what's happening in the industry is we're going to a much more sustainable and ethical approach to transportation safety. Sustainable in the fact that we need to start thinking about people in general, wanting to move people, whether they're walking or bicycling or in cars or trucks. Um, and then looking at it from an ethical perspective is people will always make mistakes that lead to road crashes. We can't eliminate all crashes, but we have some sort of potential to eliminate crashes that result in serious injury or death. And this is kind of the background of the Vision Zero, the vision zero principles, mm -hmm. is that the human body has a physical tolerance to crash forces um, before harm will occur. Um, and there's also a shared responsibility among road users, among the drivers, among the people that are walking or bicycling, among the engineers, and also among the decision makers and politicians at agencies that are responsible for the public roadways that we use. And we need to strengthen all parts of the systems so that all road users are protected if one part fails. So if a driver um, ends up being distracted or does not see a pedestrian or bicyclist in the roadway, how can we make a change um, in the environment to help minimize the injury of that crash? And we know that um, we can reduce that impact um, or the injury if we reduce the speed and velocity of the impact, reducing angles, so looking at different um, solutions such as intersection roundabouts, mm -hmm. which you're not only reducing the speeds, but you're changing the angle of mm -hmm. the collision. Um, and so that's kind of the whole safe systems approach of Vision Zero. And I do see that it's um, finally really starting to gain momentum right. in North America and also um, with a USDOT and the Federal Highway Administration supporting the safe systems approach. Once they start promoting that area and we kind of get past traditional methods of setting speed limits and things, I think we're going to see a lot of so things happening. So the traditional methods and the traditional engineering approach, 
there's always this classic four E's or five E's. Can you speak to the, the traditional framework for engineering? Sure. So in transportation safety, we, we talk about the four E's as being engineering, education, enforcement, and emergency medical services. Um, however, one thing that, that we see as, as engineers having very little control over is the education and enforcement. A lot of funding uh, doesn't cover education necessarily, or uh, education and enforcement falls under law enforcement officials. And police departments and engineering departments or transportation departments don't necessarily work seamlessly. Sometimes we, we work in silos um, and, and, and just take control over our one area. However, we really need to create a culture of safety across all departments and industries um, because we all have responsibility in that. Right. So and it seems that the ease keep on getting added. I've heard, you know, um, advocates for the the framework of to the transportation safety arena take into account empathy, equity, uh, ethics, you know, being additional ease. Yes, there's even evaluation. So we, yes. we certainly want to add ease or even change the ease. And I think that we're simply starting to go away from that in terms of we know that these are all factors and um, I'm seeing more and more of maybe just calling it an overall safe systems approach and considering that there are just different factors in road users or in terms of in terms of emergency medical services you know just a matter of how quickly can people be responded to or the trauma um, care that they receive and trauma care and, and emergency response that I rarely see the statistics come out on this uh, but it um, from my reading it is a fairly heavy uh, cost burden uh, to the overall systems is our emergency response to uh, any sort of traffic incident certainly it definitely pulls a lot of resources from our police force it also uh, makes a big differential between crashes that occur in urban areas where there may be facilities nearby versus rural areas where it's going to take a longer time for that person to be transported to get care um, and we also don't see a lot of collaboration between those organizations either because data that engineers look at or related to the motor vehicle crash doesn't align with the data that hospitals are collecting. And so there hasn't been a lot of cross-reference between those areas. However, there are some good examples of how attention to that area can really help support um, both the traffic safety and also um, traffic operations. For example, uh, Arizona DPS co-located an officer with the Arizona Department of Transportation Traffic Management Center, and so they're able to respond to crashes a lot quicker, and that cost-benefit ratio um, was like over 200 because they're able to reduce those secondary collisions that happen when an incident mm -hmm. is blocking a freeway. Interesting. and. There's been a fair amount of federal dollars that go towards highway safety. Is the same amount of priority being um, allocated towards city uh, or the urban uh, off the highway uh, transportation systems in your 
So all of the federal dollars for highway safety specifically is is um, dedicated through the Highway Safety Improvement Program, and it's dedicated through states, and then the states uh, dictate how that gets distributed. And in Arizona, it was distributed a different way a few years ago, where it was an 80% split to rural areas and about a 20% went to the cities and municipalities in urban areas. And the flip side of that is that the crashes were happening 80% in the urban area and 20% in the rural when you look at the fatal and serious injury collisions. And recently they made a big switch to make it uh, more competitive in terms of across the state, it's based on the need at a intersection or corridor, regardless of whether it's urban or rural. Um, and so that, I think, is going to um, put those dollars where they may be needed most. However, those dollars are actually pretty few and far between, and there's a long cycle to implement those dollars. So we may see data being analyzed for the past five years, and once it gets programmed, you're waiting another five years before that in that strategy can even get implemented. So that timeline is really critical when you have a hotspot or an issue that needs to be resolved. Cool. So what's some of the more um, effective approaches that cities are doing to or, or taking to prioritize safety off the highway system given the funding priorities that are working against them? Cities are doing a lot in terms of analyzing both historic crash data and then using predictive modeling as well to apply systemic approaches to implement strategies that may, cor that may correct issues that haven't occurred yet. For example, there may be a crash hotspot at an intersection related to offset left turn lanes where uh, there's not good site visibility. Yeah, what's and, an offset for, for those who aren't in the transportation industry? Uh, it means that the two left turn lanes are not directly aligned and they may be offset by four feet or more. And so when um, a driver is looking forward, the vehicle in the opposing left turn lane is actually blocking their view for oncoming traffic. And a negative offset. Yes, and a negative offset is what would block their view. You can also have a positive offset where they would be separated in a direction where it would actually help the driver see farther down the road. Mm -hmm. This this is mostly important for high-speed intersections where folks that are coming through the intersection at 45 or greater speed ends up being a great threat to those making the left-hand turn movements. And the timing is in, is critical decision-making uh, for those making those left-hand turn movements. Right, because those left-hand turn movements are made through gaps um, in, the tra in the traffic. And if that collision occurs, it'd be a left turn collision. And having that angle and velocity, you know, usually result in those serious injuries. Um, and so what they could do is if, if they see that this is happening at one intersection, they may not have the funding to implement and reconstruct all of their intersections to make that offset um, zero or positive. And so what they could do is they could protect the left turn, but instead of doing it just at that one intersection, they could do it at all of the intersections that may have that issue to prevent the crashes at the other locations. Because crashes are really actually few and far between, and they're a rare occurrence, um, but there are areas that 
agencies can focus on using historical crash analysis. As I mentioned, some are using dashboards um, either through ArcGIS, Microsoft Power BI, um, or just really uh, sophisticated Excel spreadsheets. Okay, you said protect the left hand turn, like uh, the left turns. What does that mean mm-hmm. for those not in the industry? Sure. So this is actually one of the principles also tied to Vision Zero in terms of trying to separate users by space or time. So this is a really good example of separating users by time, meaning that when you have a permissive left turn. It means that you either have a green ball indication or you have a flashing yellow arrow indication. And that means that that left turn is permitted, but that driver has to yield to oncoming traffic. And again, if their distance, uh, their side distance is blocked or if they're making poor decisions in the gaps in traffic, um, then the decision to protect that left turn means that they only either get a green arrow or a red arrow. So when they have that green arrow, they're the only ones making that movement. So they're protected in that time period. Very good. And how does this protected um, time and space uh, work in the, to the benefit of pedestrians and bicyclists? Uh, what are some of the industry's trends towards um, doing that for the non-motorists? For non-motorists, this is really critical. So separating non-motorists and space um, is a good example uh, that can be accomplished by having separated bike lanes on roadways, by having side paths or off-street networks. At a traffic signal, separating the non-motorists in time would be having a like leading pedestrian interval or a leading bicycle interval, which would give them three to seven seconds of extra time um, where they could establish their presence in the crosswalk where no other vehicles are crossing their paths. Yeah, so they lead it. They're the first ones in the intersection before the cars have the permissive or protected turning movements, correct? Correct. And there's also an exclusive pedestrian interval where um, in certain areas also called called the Barnes Dance, where all the vehicles are stopped and only the pedestrians would, would be able to go, but then they could go in all directions. Um, this would only really work well in like really urban areas um, because it actually causes a lot of delay to the pedestrians as well to have to wait um, so many seconds for their time to go. Right. So that's, that is an interesting uh, approach, but one that has... Um, proven to have a lot of safety benefits, right? The Barnes Dance, which is um, something crazy compared to what we're typically used to, the, the normal approach to the intersection where you're crossing in a line. And if you want to get to the, the opposite corner of you, then you have to cross it twice and wait for two things. But the, the diagonal uh, permission to do uh, to cross in the diagonal, uh, the way that the Barnes Dance allows, because it's a pedestrian only time is, um, definitely something that a lot of Americans aren't used to, right? It's not something that you see on many North American uh, intersections, but there's a very famous one in Tokyo. Mm. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, um, search Tokyo pedestrian intersections, I'm sure that it will show up in your Google search. So um, very interesting. Do you know of a Barnes Dance in Arizona? 
I don't know of one that's operating currently. However, we are working with Arizona State University on uh, some new signals that may be installed in conjunction with their uh, transit and rideshare programs. And those intersections um, are looking to implement an exclusive pedestrian phase because they have more pedestrians going through those intersections than vehicles due to their proximity on campus. Yeah, so I think that, so a barn's dance is something that happens at an intersection that's going to always have this cycle effect to it, right? That's just based on a repetitive um, cycle of this direction of traffic, that direction of traffic, and now the barn's dance, and now rinse and repeat, right? Right. But when you bring in like something like a transit stop into that evaluation, and you can make it adaptive to where it's, well, the train is just let off, 40 passengers and now there's this big all of a sudden pedestrian um, warrants for uh, allocating them a lot of time where it's you have to be adaptive to it though too because it's only in conjunction with when people are coming off of the train or coming off of a bus Mm -hmm. Uh, have you seen anything like that uh, be evaluated in in arizona that you're familiar with no, I'm not familiar with anything specific to that. However, that was a big consideration in these um, locations at ASU in terms of both uh, pedestrian traffic coming from a parking garage and pedestrian traffic coming from a major transit hub. Uh, made a lot of sense to incorporate pedestrians as one of the major crossing elements of this intersection. So to incorporate that exclusive phase just for those movements. Yeah, that's interesting. And- and something like a downtown Mesa, I think that doing adaptive phasing or, or allowing additional time for pedestrians or reducing the, the throughput for vehicles during the time of the train unloading or as downtown Mesa becomes even more transit rich, mm-hmm. like being aware of the, the peak demands of pedestrians right. and having this adaptation, um, be aware of the, the unloading and loading of the transit. And one of the reasons why you might not hear it um, be addressed that often is primarily because like transit headways are going to be much higher than the cycle of a traffic signal. So you may have headways that are 10 to 12 minutes or 30 minutes or more, and that traffic signal is cycling, uh, you know, 60 seconds, 120 seconds, probably not much more than that. And so Mm -hmm. you're really getting um, pretty good service from that traffic signal versus the headways of, of transit. Right. And so it's, it has to be adaptive because it's not one of those things that's going to happen every 120 seconds. It's only going to happen when the, the train comes. And if it's smart enough and knows how many passengers are on the train, it, you can get really like data intense. Right. right. Like, so it's, it's interesting to see how big data um, has a lot of promise and how are you seeing that big data is being used in, in, in Arizona um, with regards to uh, traffic? The primary you know, component of big data that I'm seeing right now is that our municipalities are very data rich. Um, however, they have to provide that data for free to all the third parties for their analysis. But then there's a lot of benefits from that private side in terms of turning that raw data that is coming from municipal systems into something usable for the traveling public um, or for analysis. And so as an engineer, what we're seeing is that we can make 
stronger data-driven decisions because there's more data available. There's a lot more data that's available on a large scale, so we can start making regional decisions um, on it. And we can also actually also gather data from certain systems like Strava, which is collecting bicycling data, and Streetlight data is collecting data from people that have apps installed on their phones, and we can use that data if we really want to get granular, and it can be less expensive than if we were to do a one-time data collection effort. It's, there was an interesting article uh, recently about a bridge. Was it New York or San Francisco? One of these large municipalities. The guy had all these old cell phones that he had in a wagon, and I he saw pulled that. across the. <laughs> the I bridge, saw that. Yeah. And he totally hacked like Google's uh, predictive uh, analytics for where there's traffic, and like it showed up red, even though it was very the flow, the traffic flow was just fine. Sure, and and that is a like a one-time instance that really, you know, caused a lot of headlines and I've actually been working in that particular industry for a long time with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi sensors that are instrumented on our roadways and what we see is that um, you know, that happened for that one hour that he did. But when we're doing an an analysis, we're not looking at just one hour. So it would be like it would take a huge collaborative effort to like really break the system or or cause such a big change that when we look at our big data that it wouldn't be statistically significant. Yeah, obviously that was just like a sort of a, a let's see what sort of disruption I can create in this real time uh, mm -hmm. type of system, not in a, a systems approach where you're trying to really. Uh, optimize the system in any sort of planning capacity. Right. It does also lend to the fact that when we have an urban area with a lot more data samples, we have a lot more confidence in that data versus when we've used some of the Bluetooth and Wi-Fi detection to do analytics on rural roadways with a much smaller percentage and actually quantity of matches. Um, we have to just take that data with a grain of salt and it's up to the analyst to understand you know, how best to use that data. Yeah, very cool. Well, um, besides uh, having fun with uh, a bunch of wagons of, of phones, I don't know how much, uh, if that story highlights anything for you in particular as to how to manage um, our systems in a real-time um, way, because haven't you been involved in Mesa's Transportation Center or Traffic Center mm -hmm. as, as how it manages? Can you, can you give people a little bit of an overview as to how much, how many uh, the resources that go into trying to have this like real-time traffic management uh, center uh, operating in our cities? Sure, it's pretty incredible what our cities have in terms of the resources now available to operate the many traffic signals that are in our communities, ranging from City of Phoenix with over a thousand traffic signals, Mesa with I think around four hundred. Town of Gilbert with over 200 and these central management centers are really critical in terms of being able to manage and make sure that all the traffic signals are operating at, at all times. Um, that's kind of a life safety <laughs> you know, issue, but they're able to implement a lot of intelligent transportation solutions that have been around for the past 20 years and, and are pretty much standard now for urban areas to have equipment with connectivity, communications to all their traffic signals. Mesa has adaptive traffic signals that essentially operate um, as 
an intelligent and like artificial intelligence mode where they have a lot of detection to detect the vehicles approaching the roadway, departing the roadways, and it can actually change traffic signal timing on the fly without uh, operator support. And that's uh, something that really supports certain areas during times of fluctuation, like special events or seasonal shopping, things like that. I think about these types of um, command centers and adaptive signals and all these um, add-ons to signal optimization as worthwhile investments because of how much uh, goes into the building of capacity in our roadways. Mm -hmm. And to see that those capacities are sort of underutilized or just not optimized, uh, the, the little bit more investment that goes into optimizing uh, traffic signals and, and optimizing the intersections uh, seems like a worthwhile investment. Um, in terms of your typical intersection uh, being kind of the dumb signal versus the adaptive signal with maybe a little traffic center support, mm -hmm. um, ballpark, how much more expensive is an intersection uh, to go from the, the dumb uh, kind of the base to, to the maybe base more to, adaptive? To the, to more adaptive. Um, it's a bit hard to quantify, but I would say it'd be 30 to 40% more expensive. A lot of the expense is going to, um, to detection technologies, and some of that detection has to occur upstream of the intersection. So a lot of it is dictated by whether the agency might have right-of-way or actually the cost to install the detection upstream. In Mesa, we actually worked around federal requirements and environmental clearance and in, essentially installed cameras at the intersection and just projected them um, a few hundred feet upstream. So that worked in that scenario. But it takes some foresight in terms of like what to install. You have to have more um, channels in the cabinet. You have mm -hmm. to make sure that you have operators in the transportation department that can set up and calibrate that equipment. Um, Is it set it and forget it and it's good for 20 years? You know, it kind of seems like that's been the case in terms of Mesa's experience um, when they first installed their SCAT system around the Superstition Springs Mall area. It was a more complicated system and somewhat black box. However, once they got it installed, they haven't had to, you know, go back and do signal retiming. So that's where the benefit is, is where if you have traffic signals, you need to retime them pretty consistently. Uh, in the past, it's been every three years. Currently, we have automated traffic signal performance measures that may alert the staff to when they need to pay more attention to certain corridors. And what we've seen with adaptive systems is that they essentially are competitive with brand new traffic signal timings, but then it's constant. So it is a little bit set it and forget it in terms of you're not always tweaking that system um, once you have it established. Okay, so it, it is a little easier to manage for the city of Mesa those intersections with, with the proper technology and the proper implementation. Definitely in the long term. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so, so what I'm trying to do here is, is get a comparison between that baseline uh, if we 
did not use these technologies at the intersections, what the intersections would look like in order to be operated at the same level of service. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking higher maintenance and operation costs, uh, wider intersections that are more hostile to the non-motorists, longer, you know, intersection or wider intersections, uh, faster turning movements, uh, potential like hazards with regards to safety and um, sustainability and livability and anybody who'd want to even live near that intersection or, or make that walk across that intersection, you know, on foot or by bike. So I think in terms of optimizing those intersections in this using technology and being adaptive mm -hmm. and, and um, optimizing the amount of pavement that you've already put down rather than adding additional pavement. Right. Seems like from like a human scaled ethical perspective, it's a win. And then also fiscally. Definitely. It's, it's a smaller, much smaller capital cost to put efforts into operations rather than capital improvements. And as I mentioned before, in terms of silos between different groups, those are usually separate groups and they don't always work together. And I think it would be good to note that traffic operations can certainly help with traffic management and mitigation to a point. Once an intersection is oversaturated, there is not much more you can do, whether it's adaptive or signal timing. Once there's a ton of vehicles there, it's gonna break down. And so that kind of brings me to a point where my approach to traffic and traffic management is very holistic in terms of we don't want to only accommodate vehicles or we don't want to always accommodate peds and bikes. It's a whole system and how they work together. If we can get people out of their cars um, onto bicycles or walking or into transit or carpooling even, we can reduce the number of cars. And so that will help overall mm -hmm. in terms of us being able to better manage our transportation systems because our land is finite. Um, and our dollars are finite. We can really invest a lot more responsibly if we do it um, across transportation modes. Okay, so what movements in this field in Tempe and Mesa are you most proud of with regards to how we are mode shifting, getting people out of cars, being more efficient, maybe even carpooling? Uh, what, what gives you promise that you see um, being done or like on the horizon, or have we have we made a significant jump in, in what you've seen? I think that we've seen significant efforts at implementation from communities like Mesa and Tempe in different areas. Tempe is very different in terms of their daytime population is 50% higher than their nighttime population. They're an importer of mm -hmm. jobs and students, and they cannot build their way out of their traffic issues. They've invested a lot in transit in the city of Tempe, and that's helped a lot. However, now it's getting to a point where we need to put some responsibility on employment centers as well in terms of staggering work shifts, uh, making parking more expensive and not as readily available or as easy to access um, so that we can get some people to make that choice. I think it's too convenient to drive here in the oh, valley. Wow. I, I love when the traffic engineers start thinking in terms of behavioral economics. That's, yes. 
that has been like kind of a missing uh, piece of the puzzle, has it not? Like mm-hmm. behavioral economics with regards to uh, evaluating uh, and optimizing our transportation system. Right. It is. You know, it's if if you have to make a decision as to whether you take a bicycle or walk or take transit versus paying fifty dollars to park you know, or even a couple hundred dollars a month to park somewhere, it's going to really change your uh, decision making. And actually, I encountered this when we just opened our office in Denver. I essentially told my employees, you can either pick to have a parking space paid for, or you can pick for the monthly transit pass. And I was um, interested to see what their pick would be, because they would have to pay for the for the other option. And they ended up picking the transit pass. You know, it would, it would, it would be easy enough for me to say, oh, we'll just pay for it. But to put that, um, that financial burden on them, you know, really made them think about both what was sustainable for the environment, what would work best for them in terms of getting around in, in the Denver area. So it's interesting to see that. But in Denver, they're, they're, they have a very strong transit and light rail um, program, and they're essentially also implementing a ton of separated bike lanes, a ton of infrastructure. It's very walkable because it's very dense in their downtown. So there's a lot of differences than than we see here in Tempe and Mesa, um, or even around the region. What I see as a real asset for non-motorized travel are our off-street networks of our canal systems. However, that's not enough. It's not something that we can say is going to take care of um, non-motorized travel. We have to complement it with a comfortable and safe on-street network as well. And it's trying to work with the different um, departments in different communities and having the political will to do that as well. Yeah, and I see that you're you're the type of... um person and professional in this industry that sees the need to branch across different professions and across different um, skill sets. Um, Who do you like working with or who do you think that traffic engineers work best with to get things done in the way that need to be done, um, maybe that aren't always done well (laughs) everywhere all the time? I think it really depends on the entire culture of a community in terms of having management support and support from the city or town council on making advancements in these areas. I think that it's really easy to, for example, sell town council on, hey, we want to be innovative and put money towards intelligent transportation systems and it's the future and it's less expensive than capital improvement projects it's a lot harder to say hey we need to spend just as much as we would spend to add a travel lane to now add the separated bicycle lane uh, because we believe that people are going to use it but you don't see them using it today yeah there's there's a lot that we need to do together to figure out uh, that mode shift. And uh, anybody who's used to listening to this podcast know that me and David rant about how cars are holding us back from like the livable environments, and and so and how streets are designed, and how our 
buildings are designed to either complement the, the the street as um, you're using it as a pedestrian or a bicyclist or as a transit user mm-hmm. versus set way back with the giant parking lot that just becomes this moat between the sidewalk and the entrance of a building. So you, right. you feel it from the, how the land is being developed. You feel it in the way that the trans, uh, transportation system is being developed. Mm-hmm. And we need to be in tune with that feeling. What do we feel is uh, this environment is optimized for? And to, to put the onus entirely on the traffic engineer, I think is uh, misplaced. Like we all have responsibility in feeling what this feels like and knowing what a design and what a policy and what a funding uh, allocation would look like if we don't want to feel this way any longer. Right. And there's a lot of policies in place that support the current way that people use vehicles. And it's not that the vehicle is the enemy. Vehicles are amazing and, you know, are a have a rich history in North America and the United States. However, it's how we can use it and better reallocate the transportation modes um, to really better suit our infrastructure and our way of life. And what's really neat right now is that we have this like culmination of different technologies such as the um, you know driving on demand versus having to own a vehicle and mm-hmm. then park it 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. If we had a fleet of vehicles, we can actually be much more efficient with how many vehicles we need and use and get them off the roadway. If we made better choices in terms of carpooling, van pooling, um, using and supporting transit, um, or even in you know in in the Phoenix metro area, I think bicycling is a very viable option. Everyone says, oh, it's so hot. But you go to other areas where it, there's too many hills, there are there's snow, mm-hmm. you know, there's much worse weather conditions than here. Um, it's actually quite easy in this area. And I think if we just made it um, more comfortable, more, more convenient for people to use. When I look at it, you know, I'm in a time in my life where I have kids, I have to take them to school, I have to take them to soccer, I have to take them to, to different things, and so I need a vehicle for that. But there are other you know, people in different times in their lives where maybe we can help them choose, a, choose those different modes to provide more mobility, to provide more convenience. And also, it's less expensive when you don't own a car. Owning a car is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. The capital cost, the maintenance cost, the insurance cost, if you really calculated that out and broke it down, you could really use a lot of modes pretty effectively and not um, exceed your budget that you're probably currently spending for a vehicle. Yeah, and... Uh... Just a reminder, housing plus transportation costs are the majority of most households' income allocation, and it's a huge cost burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Center for Neighborhood Technology, a group out of Chicago, they do these types of maps on GIS, and they map wherever there's uh, households or neighborhoods that exceed 45% of their household budget towards these costs, the housing and the plus plus transportation. And when you look at Mesa, it's not much, should be very much surprised that the built environment has a, and our land use uh, has a big component uh, to that. So the, the land use component in the further out east that they go, the further away from job centers that they go, the, the transportation costs. Um, 
start to stack up. And uh, I think that the, the recent data is somewhere over $7,000 is the average transportation cost for car, per car per, per household. So mm-hmm. um, all the data is, is lining up to, uh, to, to back what you just said. So let's get back to Vision Zero. Because mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about you know the different avenues as to what we're doing to try to um, keep vehicles moving through intersections without widening the intersections. How technology is playing out. How the traditional ease of the engineering field haven't quite um, got us to where we need to be safety-wise. Um, how uh, the silos are breaking us down. The the enforcement. The engineering field kind of being out on its own and not having as much favor with maybe the additional support that we can get from the planning side, that we can get from the policing side or the operation side, all of it. And the, and the funding allocations that, that come from the top down and kind of say that the 80-20 uh, flip is, is, is allocated um, for, whatever re- for whatever reasons, uh, not helping to address where the peak need actually is. So tell me about how Vision Zero helps come in and complement or, or, or fill in this gap for safety that we have seen off of the highway system and in urban centers. Vision Zero is a movement that's actually been around for a long time. It's an initiative that started in, in Europe and is really now taking hold in, in North America. And it has the basic principles that I mentioned before about the fact that it's an ethical responsibility for us. And we're not trying to reduce all crashes. We're just trying to reduce the serious injury and fatal crashes Mm -hmm. and that we have some component to help address that as engineers, as professionals in the transportation industry. And we can't just blame drivers or people for, for that. Tempe is the first Vision Zero city in Arizona, and hopefully not the last. But just the fact that other cities haven't adopted Vision Zero doesn't mean that they're not taking steps towards transportation safety. It's simply having that official recognition by the mayor, by the council, a resolution, and then um, the program that really is integrating transportation safety across CIP projects and enforcement and kind of breaking down those silos and creating that safety culture, also bringing it down to residents and the community members to to help educate them that they're a big part of the solution as well. And for the city of Tempe, they you know, had certain projects already implemented. They were already doing crash analysis to identify where um, the crashes were occurring. But some of the steps that they've been taking since adopting Vision Zero um, have have included reevaluating citywide uh, travel speeds and posted speed limits. And Tempe being where it's at landlocked and being that community where they actually have an import of population during the day, um, they are looking at their city and having the north ha- the north half has more serious injury and fatal crashes. You have the younger drivers with uh, the students at ASU. You have you know people that are not maybe familiar with the area driving and you have that congestion as as well during those peak times so it doesn't make sense to have a 45 mile per hour posted speed limit in those areas when you know you have a lot of pedestrians you know you have a lot of bicyclists um, 
and you know that you want to reduce that risk of serious injury and fatality. And I wish I could show the graphic right now, which demonstrates, you know, at 25 miles per hour, if a person gets hit by a vehicle, um, they have a 90% chance of survival. If you increase that speed to 45 miles per hour, that person now only has a 10% chance of survival. And there's a huge difference. A small decrease in travel speeds is actually a huge increase in the probability of survivability of a crash. And something else that in terms of engineering we didn't have before is we don't take regular pedestrian and bicyclist counts. We don't know how many pedestrians or bicyclists are on our roadway networks. We're really good at counting cars because cars go in one place and we can take a count on that roadway. But pedestrians and bicyclists, they travel like water anywhere and everywhere. And um, it's harder to quantify where they are and sometimes difficult to see that they're there because you can you can pass a lot of bikes and pedestrians through a point um, in space before they're going to get congested or backed up, whereas vehicles, it doesn't take much before you start seeing those cues. And so I think that makes a difference as well in how subconsciously we think that there's not a lot of pedestrians or bicyclists, but in reality, there are quite a few. And we need to make sure that in that system, if there is a collision, because there inevitably will be, that they're just it just won't result in those serious injuries and fatalities. And you've mentioned how roundabouts um, at, at a, uh, that different angle and different velocity through uh, the intersection, different speed, and how that's a huge win. However, roundabouts aren't for every environment, right? They're not for the, the most urbanist of environments. You won't ever see a huge roundabout in Manhattan, for instance, or um, and, and even in Europe where you see these giant uh, roadways in even urban areas, those have been like at the expense of a loss of giant pedestrian plazas and, and things of that nature. And so there's sort of this tension that I think um, we have to be very careful on how we allocate space um, at the intersections. And I have not seen Tempe try a roundabout, nor would I necessarily advise them to try a roundabout. They actually have oh, a two okay. underway. One is currently constructed with the new streetcar at oh. Ash and uh, Rio Salado, and the streetcar will actually turn right through the middle of it. Yeah. And they have another one under design um, on the west side of their community. Roundabouts can be implemented in urban areas, and Scottsdale has actually done a really good example of that. They have some very innovative designs, and and I think that when you look at roundabout design maybe over 20 or 30 years, or take some of the rotary examples from Europe, those are not the best examples. But we have a lot of great examples of more modern designs that um, don't take as much right-of-way. But I think one of the problems is, is that the way that we allocate right-of-way is always in the shape of a signalized intersection where when you actually compare maybe what a roundabout would take, the square foot of right-of-way or pavement might not be different, but it's in a different configuration. So we need those corners mm. in the, you know, um, at the intersection in order to fit the roundabout, and but we don't need as many lanes approaching the roundabout or exiting the roundabout. So there's some differences there that just take some education and 
um, it can be a solution that we should evaluate. California actually has a roundabouts first policy now where they'll evaluate roundabouts um, along with intersections. And Scottsdale, I don't know if there's a written policy, but they're very, you know, a, um, a strong proponent. And it's that, sa- that, that safety benefit mm-hmm. that should provide justification for any municipality to really evaluate roundabouts seriously because you essentially are eliminating the collision types that result in serious injuries. The and T-bone. Yeah, the T-bone, the angle crashes. Um, and people sometimes say, oh, it's not good for pedestrians. It's not good for, for, for pedestrians. I just heard a statistic yesterday from FHWA that there's only been one pedestrian fatality at any roundabout in North America. Mm. I can probably look up all the traffic crashes right now and pull up hundreds of intersections where there's been pedestrian fatalities. And so when you look at that safety benefit um, and the cost to society and the emotional cost you know, for that loss, um, there then becomes that new justification for evaluating that intersection type. I do want to mention that when you bring up those point those roundabouts in Tempe my mind was not on those smaller uh, intersections which I like a fan of okay. those smaller intersections um, roundabouts in Tempe seem to be um, great because they don't create the, the huge um, out of the way uh, so with, with pedestrians we, we have this desire line mm-hmm. right we want to travel in efficient linear directions from A to B mm-hmm. And so the, the larger the roundabout, the less direct that A to B can be, right? It becomes this huge bend in our um, travel of path or path of travel. So with uh, what comes to my mind, though, is that Tempe is undergoing a reconstruction or redesign of the intersection of rural mm-hmm. and university. And... It's interesting to see the old school or the still the, the desire to build our way out of congestion at, at odds now with the Vision Zero campaign. And now the intersection becomes wider. Now the crosswalk becomes longer. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the likelihood of a pedestrian feeling comfortable in that intersection becomes less it becomes a much more hostile feel to the intersection and so i'm just curious you know how those those goals are are an intention um in in your practice and and how you try to go about um making smart um recommendations to a city like tempe who's undergoing such an intersection um, given these goals that are at odds yeah, that's certainly a challenge and a challenge that Tempe is going to continue to face because they are essentially built out um, in terms of their transportation system and there are very few capacity improvements they can make. And they could potentially look at some better traffic operational improvements at those intersections. I did see the, the new schematics which added additional turn lanes. There's seems to be that there's very few or little they can do at those areas because of right-of-way constraints and the amount of traffic coming in to the Tempe Town Lake developments. Um, I would be curious to see like what those analyses are even showing. Once you get that amount of lanes, which I believe was 
three through lanes in each direction, dual lefts, dual rights. So you have ten lanes a pedestrian has to cross on one leg. Your pedestrian clearance time alone is going to make the traffic operations suffer at that intersection. And um, something that we've implemented at an intersection um, in the city of Peoria actually was we evaluated an intersection where they were they already had money budgeted to widen an intersection to add dual left turn lanes. But as we talked about earlier, between permissive and protective turns, once you have dual left turn lanes, you protect those turn movements. That means those vehicles are waiting there. So we really did a deep dive evaluation of what is the actual effect of the delay when you add in these dual left turn lanes and it did not improve the intersection overall delay to add that extra capacity. It added extra capacity for those left turns to just sit there and do nothing, but it didn't improve their operation either. And so we came up with solutions that were different and a bit out of the box, but now they're more widespread. We actually, um, in in that location, it worked out that we could serve the left turns in those directions um, with a leading and a lagging movement and they were able to keep their single left turn, not have to spend millions of dollars widening, the, widening that intersection. And now that is more be, becoming more common practice in these areas. So thinking about operations and making those changes, I think can maybe help in the long run. I think Tempe just has a lot of challenges and in that in those areas, especially on rural where they're doing those improvements, they are implementing much wider sidewalks, connections to shared use paths. So they have that active transportation and transit component in there. But I think that like as I mentioned before, they need to get the employers involved to help put some pain points on motorists. And that's where as a government, they don't have as much control, but the private side has control over their employees and can put some more pain points on cost of parking, um, times of day that their employees come or leave work, et cetera. And Tempe uh, did get a recent grant from the American Association of Governments to look at some of those transportation demand management strategies. So hopefully we'll see something implemented soon. When you get to uh, these intersections that are that wide, um, pedestrian refuge uh, help in this uh, regard, or does that just um, make that environment for a pedestrian hanging out in the middle of the intersection uh, even that more hostile? It's or? extremely uncomfortable to be a pedestrian hanging out in the middle of an intersection with 50 mile per hour traffic whizzing by for a full 120 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, where it has been implemented, it's usually just to meet standards in order to cut that pedestrian clearance time, but users will not use it unless they absolutely have to, and it's certainly not best practice. Good point. Um, and then also sometimes those pedestrian refuge makes it hard for that positive offset that we were talking about for the left-hand turns, right? Because oftentimes that median uh, is the, the bull nose or whatever that comes out, it's on. So if you're a driver who's making a left-hand turn mm-hmm. and you're in your left-hand turn uh, pocket, um, that's being cut out of an intersection. And that intersection, to in order to accommodate a pedestrian refuge, uh, oftentimes ends up to the left of you as the left-hand turning car, which then pushes you right, 
which is the opposite direction you want to be be pushed to have a good visual clearance of the oncoming traffic. Have you seen the pedestrian refuges ever um, established to the right of the left-hand turn lanes to try to promote a positive offset so that in the case where we have the the elderly or the the less able or the, the slower pedestrians who are having a tough time making that cross crossing in an adequate amount of time um, to, to get to a refuge in a like a carrot the, mm-hmm. the, the wedge between right. the left hand turn and the, the general purpose three lanes right I you know I, I cannot pinpoint a location where that has been designed that way um, it would take a lot of right away in order to get those um, left turns to the left of a median that refuge island at a minimum has to be seven feet wide in order to meet um, ADA and pro ag standards right. and when you start widening out the intersection that wide then it becomes a point okay well it's already bad to have the pedestrian be waiting in the middle of an intersection and then you're having to acquire all this extra right of way to widen the intersection what's the benefit or where are the benefits where where do they lie so it'd be probably take very specific context for that to be viable or to make sense yeah so there's when when you in design an intersection, there seems to be so many goals and so many uh, objectives to try to handle with regards to the car movement, the the timing, the the space allocation, the protection, the, the through space and time and and designing of these movements. Um, Hats off to like anybody in, in the modern era or contemporary era where we have these ever growing larger SUVs, which has now become the standard family car, and the, the, the tr- pickup trucks with the ever raising hood heights and grill uh, that's, that's taking all of our soft tissues and just smushing us <laughs> as, they, as they make you know, contact with us. Mm-hmm. So we have like, like enough challenge already trying to deal with the car dominant. Uh, landscapes of our cities and now the the car dominant uh, tools that we're using are becoming even more hostile in their design and how they potentially impact us through the intersection so it's definitely a challenge and we are seeing a lot of improvements in regards to safety in vehicle systems and so that's another amazing area that we can look forward to in the future and that we see now today with some of the vehicles being equipped with collision um, avoidance and things sensors. like that and sensors. I, I, I believe the Institute um, of Highway Safety and their like award system, they are no longer going to give like a five-star rating unless a vehicle has pedestrian collision avoidance. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing some of that coming from that industry as well. Autonomous vehicles um, have a great um, chance of preventing collisions as well, and perhaps also helping with the congestion um, issue that we're seeing. But it's going to be very challenging to navigate that as as a transition occurs, and, and what that's going to look like is going to be interesting. So we follow that. When I put my behavioral economics hat on as I'm gesturing as I'm doing, uh, which makes it official, uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure the behavioral economists will worry that the ease of transport will just make transport that much more attractive. And so the behavioral economist line is, if you want anything done, make it easier to be done. 
And so if it's easier to have uh, a long commute and uh, if it's easier to make that commute without the stress of having to be the operator of your own vehicle and that you can multitask and you can entertain yourself on, on your way to work or on your way through a commute, uh, just the behavioral economist side of me does not predict um, all, all things wonderful for the autonomous um, revolution. While a lot of the technology on the surface seems to hold a lot of promise in our current paradigm mm -hmm. uh, where we have current VMT or vehicle miles traveled and our current behavior patterns that we have today. If we just apply those um, technologies so that the autonomous level three or the autonomous level four um, just assist the driver in, in uh, making uh, smarter decisions as a driver, great with that. That, that total autonomy level though, mm -hmm. ooh, that one. That one seems to be a little bit outside of my confidence uh, as to being uh, a good um, mix into our existence. And there's a lot of variables that exist there, and we're also just thinking about autonomy for vehicles, but I think where we'll see a lot of great um, implementation of, of autonomy is going to be in transit vehicles because then you're getting rid of like a huge cost for operation mm -hmm. and that issue that, that you're talking about with someone maybe choosing to live farther away because they might be able to multitask when they're in a vehicle um, it has merit however that person that is also based on a theory that people are going to be purchasing these vehicles and 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 be able to own them themselves I think that with generations as they um, evolve or age, I think we're gonna see less dependence on vehicle ownership and more going through to this fleet-based model where someone else is responsible for maintaining and operating these vehicles and having that initial capital cost um, as we are currently seeing with the success of scooter programs, Uber and Lyft. Um, I think that that has a lot of merit to it as well. Points taken. Um, right now, our vehicles do sit for more than 90% of the time and just kind of rot in the sun or whatever, you know, and especially in this heat. So, part of me is um, it's hopeful that the fleet uh, will help provide a little tension against that behavioral outcomes. The other side is that we already invest in these cars uh, today and we don't use them nearly to their capacity. and. Uh, um, they they rot more in time than they do in actual use, right. and so like the fleet um, will actually reduce the cost of, of miles traveled or, or time uh, time plus uh, miles traveled operation costs plus the the time of ownership. So even with those kind of like dynamics in place, um, that the fleet uh, will help. Uh, put the onus on the person who's moving further away. Um, it's not like that onus isn't already there. Uh, and I think that given the amount of use that will be gained from the fleet vehicle, not having that that idling time or that, that sitting sitting unused time um, will only help reduce the cost of living further away. So mm -hmm. there's that there's that element to that equation. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to look at youth and kind of see where, see where their head's at because they're the ones that I think are going to drive it um, pretty solidly. That brings me to another point in terms of our youth and the number of young people we have in our population right now that are soon to become driving age mm -hmm. or are driving age. When we look at crash data 
younger drivers are normally always over overrepresented just due to the fact that they have not um, they are not as experienced in driving and that's an area where I think we could really double down on and mm -hmm. invest a lot more in transportation safety is the education and um, looking at the younger populations as to what choices they want to make or can make um, to help with the transportation safety issue. So the hope is in the future. It know? is. Always, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of like seatbelts, you know, yeah. where it, it, it took a generation yeah. to implement use of seatbelts. That's still an area where we need to see higher compliance mm -hmm. because it's just the numbers statistically um, are so much more in favor of people that use occupant protection, um, but we're still not getting 100% you know, compliance. I remember being a kid and my parents complaining, like, oh, got to buckle up. It's the law. Like, it wasn't like something that they wanted to comply with, right. but it's something that they felt like, you know, enforcement was going to give them a ticket if they didn't comply with. Now, I don't care if there's a police officer telling me that I need to buckle up or not. I, I don't feel right yes. not being buckled in. So that is an interesting, like, generational, like, values judgment. It's completely different. Yeah. Generation to the next. And that also brings up the role that, like, legislation and law has to play into transportation safety. I think there's a role there, but it's um, it can be a burdensome role as well. Currently, there's some legislation regarding um, enforcement of speed in Arizona, and that would be pretty um, – it would have a negative effect, I believe, on transportation safety if it if – it were supported and passed. And so we need to educate not only our transportation officials, but also our legislatures, our citizens, to make sure that they understand we all have a role. And law is, once it is enacted, I mean, it's in place for perhaps far longer than it needs to be, and it's difficult to change. And so there has to be some kind of balance of um, self-enforcement or trying to change behavior without having to in enforce or implement this like strong law because that puts a lot of burden on law enforcement as well and their resources again you you go out outside of your engineering silo which you're supposed to be comfortable in and you start talking about legislation what's wrong with you like why do you keep on trying to build bridges to these other potential like partners in, in solving this because that's where i see the difference being made i think that if i just stayed in engineering i can do everything that i could in engineering that would help with transportation safety and it wouldn't be enough if I want to see something change, I need to be involved in everything. I need to be knowledgeable because I'm going to come across someone that is going to have arguments in on another side. I need to have something to balance that. And as a just person in the community, you know, I want to make sure that it's 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 not just because it's my job. It's because I want to be educated about um, what's happening all, all all around and and hopefully being educated on that then when I get into those situations where I'm talking with a councilman or a legislature or even to my junior engineers you know that the message is getting passed on that's excellent well I've kept you for over an hour and I want to just wrap up with just like one uh, last thought uh, from you 
given all of this interest in bridging across the different uh, professionals or the different folks in in making cities a livable place and making them uh, a place where we can all be, share, cooperate, uh, live out our dreams, the American dream, even maybe just a little bit more of a cooperative type of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, what, like, so, and I think that this is true for a lot of people that we spend majority of our times being busy, but we're not accomplishing things that make us happy or fulfilled or feel like we're utilizing our talents to the best abilities to make the, the difference that we want to see in the world. So, who do you employ to get involved in, in the transportation industry? Who, who else do you think would help complement um, this movement or this, this values judgment as to what we need to be doing in the transportation industry um, to, to move the ball forward for, for the sake of empathy and equity and, and, and these extra ease that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, who do you want to see else around the table really making the time uh, for this issue? I think I'd really like to see a lot of additional commitment from elected officials in our communities in terms of having a better understanding of what can really make a difference. You know, I think they might be responding to one or two individuals that may have strong opinions, but they need to also be confident in themselves because they're making decisions for a lot of people as well and that are going to have long-term lasting effects. I'd also like to see a lot of involvement or additional involvement from both law enforcement and health officials or healthcare professionals in terms of how road crashes are affecting them because I'm sure that it's not affecting them in a positive way. They're the ones that see the trauma, that have to live with it. They're the ones that are providing the bad news to those families. And when we can hit that note of the empathy and the caring, I think that we can, in terms of a communication perspective, spread the word a lot faster. So I think that that would be um, a great area where we can get some additional input and support. Well, I hope that those folks in Mesa are listening, that our elected officials are listening. Um, I think that's great advice. I hope that uh, the police force is listening. And, you know, like medical care is actually a pretty strong uh, sector in, in Mesa's employment. So I hope that those folks are listening because you have a spot in, in helping um, address this issue. So, yeah, thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Mainstream Mesa. It really means a lot to us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. As you probably noticed, there was no David Crummy this episode, but not to fret, David is going nowhere. He'll be back soon. There's more to cover in this series, obviously. There's critical thinkers about talking about safe streets, the contrast to what we commonly expect today in our car sewers that flush people through them regularly, and it stinks. So design, funding, timing, critical thinkers, advocacy for change, all coming your way in this series. And what should success look like? Only we can answer that, and I think that we can do better. And I hope that you agree. We can add more to the conversation. Your voice is needed in this chorus. That's how advocacy works. That's how we actively promote the change we want. So, lastly, more props. This dude to Stone Martin for this amazing Staying Alive theme music that we will be enjoying all series long. 
I hope that you will continue to join us in the conversation.